Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we are celebrating the second Sunday of Advent, and we're looking particularly at the ministry of John the Baptist in preparing the way for Jesus. And as we look at this, we ask ourselves how we can prepare our own hearts for the King, and how we can be people that... Uh, through our own actions and our own lives, make space for God to move in the lives of others and in our world. So let's go ahead and head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Well, we have been going through the lectionary for the past couple of months, and our lectionary passages today are good ones. We're going to be looking at um, the, the role of John the Baptist in the narrative of the Christmas story, the Advent story. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and I'm going to start by reading a passage that is a, a prophecy in the Old Testament uh, which the early church, the, the New Testament, sees as the prophecy fulfilled by John the Baptist. So if you have a bulletin, your first passage there is Malachi 3, 1 through 5. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. This is a prophecy that, that the New Testament says is fulfilled by uh, John the Baptist. But before we get to John the Baptist, we need to get into a little bit of his backstory, which is really tied in to the Christmas story. So this story that we're looking at today begins with a guy named Zechariah. He was a, a priest in the temple. And he was married to a lady named Elizabeth. They'd been having, trying to have kids for a long time to no avail. And so they were in their uh, elderly years. Is that a good way to say it? They, they were old. <laughs> and uh, they were past the, the point of childbearing. But as we see in many places through Scripture, God kind of likes giving old people who can't have kids kids. He did that with Abraham and Sarah. And so Zechariah, it, it comes his, he, he draws the lot to, to actually go into the temple and minister to the Lord on behalf of the people, which was a really big deal. He goes into the temple and he encounters this angel, Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him, he says, you're going to have a son 
And this son is going to uh, grow in stature. He's going to be preparing the way for the Lord. And he tells him all this wonderful stuff about his son. But Zechariah reacts the way I think uh, most of us probably would react. I'll at least speak for myself. He goes, how can this be? I'm old. Uh, my wife is old. And, and, you know, it doesn't seem like this could happen. And the angel said, well, because you said that, um, you're not going to get to talk <laughs> for the next few months. And so he struck mute. So he comes out of the temple a, a considerable time later. Everybody's worried about him. He comes out of the temple, and then he can't speak anything. And then, finally, many months later, his wife has a child, and they name him John, as the angel told him. And on the day that they are taking the child to be circumcised in the temple, uh, on the eighth day after his birth, finally, Zachariah is able to open his mouth. And when he opens his mouth for the first time in many months, this is what he says. Luke, and the other passage on, your, on the front of your bullets in Luke 1, 67 through 79. His father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord! the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on these liv those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. So when he finally gets to speak, he has something to say. This one who has been born is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, I think for, for many of us men who've had children, uh, there's something special when you have a boy child. I love my girl child as well. But I think every father, when you have a son, you have certain ideas about what you kind of want that son to do. Uh, you have ideas. And, and, and Zechariah, he's been told by the Lord that there's something special about this boy child that has been born. And I'm sure that Zechariah being a priest in a long line of priests, because in Jerusalem, in, in the Jewish people, if you were a priest, it's because you were born to the right tribe, the priestly tribe, the Levites. So generation and generation going way back, they were all priests. And I'm sure that Zechariah's thinking, this guy's going to grow up and he's going to serve in the temple just like me. But there's a problem. Because as John begins to grow up, he's a little different than the other kids in the neighborhood. You know, when, it, when he gets into his teenage years, he grows out his hair, grows out his beard. He starts, starts eating locusts and wild honey. He starts dressing crazy. He's wearing shirts made out of camel hair. And that was back before it was fashionable. I don't know if his, his camel hair is still a thing. I uh, know I've seen camel hair jackets before. 
But he turns out to be a wild man. And instead of serving in the temple, John the Baptist rejects the temple. He rejects the, the family business, so to speak. He rejects uh, what, what, what every, uh, you know, what his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, what, what everyone going back generations, all the males in their family would have done. They would have been priests, and he rejects all that. Instead of serving in the temple, he goes out to the desert by a river. And, and his ministry, instead of being priestly, he begins to be one who critiques the very religion of his day. A lot of times we think that the Bible speaks with an with a absolutely unified voice on every issue, but that's just not the case. And, and in the Old Testament, that, that certainly uh, we, we don't see that happening. There's two major voices in the Old Testament. One would be the priestly voice, and the second would be the prophetic voice. And oftentimes they're at odds with one another. For instance... The priestly uh, voice in the Old Testament would say, you've got to obey the Sabbath, keep Sabbath, observe these festivals, eat this certain way, uh, hang out with this group of people. The prophets come along, though, towards the end of the Old Testament, speaking on God's behalf. They say, I hate all your festivals. (laughs) What? The ones you command us? Yeah, I hate them. I hate all the, the worship that you give. I hate it all. I hate these special days that you set aside to observe you. I hate all this. Why don't you take care of poor people instead? Why don't you show mercy? Why don't you do justice? Like that would be more pleasing to me. So we have these two voices. The, the, the priestly voice of the law and then the prophetic voice which says, look, God's not concerned with all these external things. He's concerned about your heart. You know, it is possible, you know, I, I went through a, a ceremony 18 and a half years ago where me and Dina, we gathered in a room full of our friends and family and we exchanged vows and we exchanged rings and we signed a marriage certificate and we committed to, to spend the rest of our lives together. That's a good thing, Right. But just because you've gone through a marriage ritual with someone, just because you have certified it with the state of Louisiana, just because you wear a ring, doesn't necessarily mean that your heart is still for that other person, right? It's a total possibility that even without infidelity in a marriage, one's heart can totally go cold towards the other person. That's a possible reality, right? That can happen. And I've, I've seen it on many occasions, and I think every couple must struggle through seasons where they, they don't feel like they love the other person or, or where communication has gone cold. Even if there hasn't been a major sin in that marriage, that, that, that's something you just got to do as, as human beings. But you can actually get to the point, and I've seen this before, where you're just cohabitating with a roommate. <laughs> After all these years, your, your love has grown cold. There's nothing there. It's just sheer commitment. And that really isn't what God intended. And I think that that's kind of where the Jewish people had gotten during the time of John the Baptist. The religion had become purely external. And it wasn't just a matter of going through the motions. It was actually that they had neglected the weightier matters like taking care of those on the margins of their society. 
they'd lost the heart of it all. And this is why John the Baptist, uh, this is one of the main reasons he comes on the scene. His ministry was calling people to repentance. And repentance, as I've said before, isn't a matter of just crying over your sin, right? We see people all the time in politics who get caught doing something that they're, they're not supposed to do. And they're, I'm sorry. And then they just keep doing the same thing. Maybe you've been caught doing something before and you said you're sorry and you just keep on doing the same thing. Um, that happens. That's not repentance. Repentance isn't saying you're sorry. Repentance is actually changing your actions, your actual life. And so this is the ministry of John the Baptist. He's calling people to abandon external religion in, 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 in exchange for a change of heart. I love the way Eugene Peterson uh, puts this in the message in Matthew 3, 1 through 12. While Jesus was living in the Galilean hills, John, called the baptizer, was preaching in the desert country of Judea. His message was simple and austere like his desert surroundings. Change your life. God's kingdom is here. John and his message were authorized by Isaiah's prophecy. Thunder in the desert. Prepare for God's arrival. Make the road smooth and straight. John dressed in a camel hair habit, tied at the waist by a leather strap. He lived on a diet of locusts and wild field honey. People poured out of Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jordanian countryside to hear and see him in action. There at the Jordan River, those who came to confess their sins were baptized into a changed life. When John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded. Brood of snakes, what do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as father. Being a descendant of Abraham is neither here nor there. Descendants of Abraham are a dime a dozen. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes on the fire. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. The real action comes in next. The main character in this drama, compared with him, I'm a mere stagehand. He will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false, he'll put out with the trash to be burned. Whoa, now. <laughs> You think you can get a little water on your snake skin and it's going to change anything? <laughs> what matters is your life. Bear fruit that, that, that justifies, that, that, that speaks of your repentance. See, I think oftentimes we, we think that Christianity is all about believing the right things. You can believe right things all day and, and not have it affect your uh, life. I can believe things that have no bearing on me at all. <laughs> John wasn't trying to intellectually change people's minds. 
saying, get rid of that. Bear fruit. Bear fruit of a changed life. If there's anything that we can notice from the life of John the Baptist is that John the Baptist was one who did not settle for the status quo. He was not going to just go along with the way things had always been. Wasn't interested in playing that game at all. I think John the Baptist is a, a, what I would call a good opening band. A good appetizer, right? As Eugene Peterson puts it, he's, he's a mere stagehand. He's, he's not the main point of this whole thing going on on the stage. Earlier this year, I got to, to see uh, anybody familiar with Ray, Ray LaMontagne. I think that's the way you say it, even though his, his name is worded rather complicated at the end there. But Ray LaMontagne, I got to see him at the Sanger's Theater down in New Orleans earlier this year. And I got to tell you, he had an amazing opening band. I don't even remember what their name was, but they were good. It's, you, know, you know an opening band is good when you've never heard them before and their music connects with you emotionally. And you're just like, wow. And that's the way it was. I'm, I'm hearing this opening band. I'm like, these guys are really good. I was drawn into their music. But, you know, the whole time that they're, they're playing music and stuff, every few songs they're like, who's ready to hear Ray? The crowd would erupt. Because they knew it wasn't their show. They weren't the main thing that people came to see. They weren't the reason why people bought their tickets. And then when Ray LaMontagne finally takes the stage, turns out two of the people in this band get up and play in his band. And I got to thinking, that's John the Baptist kind of ministry. You know, when I was, I was in a band uh, many years ago, and I remember we were like the worst opening band. <laughs> we were the worst. Because we had the opportunity on a couple of occasions. We were a good band, but we, had, we were a bad opening band. <laughs> Because there was a few occasions where we got to open for some people that, you know, we're going to be playing in front of 500, 1,000 people instead of the regular 30 or 40 that we would draw. And so when we had that opportunity to open for someone with a bigger name, you know, where, where people actually paid, you know, $15, $20 for tickets, we were like, oh, yeah, this is our shot, man. We're going to show this world what we're like. We're going to play so good. It's, people are going to, they're not even going to like the, next, the, 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 the main band. We actually put ourselves in an adversarial relationship, uh, seeing ourselves as competition with the main band. We made it all about us. We played longer than we were supposed to. We, <laughs> you know, we, we, we exercised self-indulgent guitar solos and, and just all these things because we were making it about us. Now, there's a problem there because... We thought a little too highly of ourselves than we ought to. We weren't self-aware because we weren't really that good. But instead of preparing the audience for the band that was coming up, we tried to make it all about us. A good opening band is like that band I saw with Ray LaMontagne. We're, we're going to set the stage. We know that our place in here is just to get people ready for the main act. We're going to embrace it. We're going to play some good music. But ultimately, it's not about us. It's about getting people ready for the main act. And when the main act comes on the scene, we're, we're actually going to step then into a supportive role. John the Baptist 
as Jesus' ministry starts to take off, he starts to lose some people. A lot of his followers start following Jesus, and somebody comes up one day and says, John, what are you going to do? All these people are leaving your ministry to go follow this this son of a carpenter from, from, from Galilee. And John says, look, I must decrease that he may increase. It's not about me. I'm not trying to have a worldwide ministry. I'm just trying to prepare the way for Jesus. That's why I'm here. That's my role. I think one of the most destructive temptations that we face oftentimes as Christians is we try to be God for other people. Pastors are the worst. We are. I think every pastor has, has this latent uh, Messiah complex. That's why we got into ministry. We want to change people. We want to fix people, right? I love the way Eugene Peterson <laughs> discusses this in his memoir, The Pastor. He writes of his early years of pastoring up in Baltimore. He says, incrementally, without noticing what was going on, I had been shifting from being a pastor dealing with God and people's lives to treating them as persons dealing with problems in their lives. I was not being their pastor. I could have helped them and still been their pastor. But by reducing them to problems to be fixed, I omitted the biggest thing of all in their lives, God. And their souls. And the biggest thing in my life, my vocation as a pastor. I realized in myself a latent messianic complex, which given free reign would have obscured the very nature of congregation by redefining it simply as a gathering of men and women who I was in charge of helping with their problems. The messianic virus, which can so easily decimate the pastoral vocation once it finds a host, me, is hard to get rid of. As with the common cold, there doesn't seem to be any sure cure prevention or other medicines. The best you can do is to try to stay healthy on a decent diet and plenty of exercise and worship with the people of God. I know in my early years of ministry... When I would encounter broken people, I'm like, dun, 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 here I am to save you. I shall put your life back together for you. And for those of you who have tried that before, for those of you who spent time trying to fix other people, it's kind of fun at first. And it really does a good bit for your ego because then they start seeing you as the one who is supposed to fix them. You become God for them. (laughs) Um, You get something out of it, but ultimately you become less. And as a pastor, I don't think there's anything that can take you down the way a messianic complex can. I had to come to grips with this or it would eat my lunch. I had to realize, like, I'm not here to fix you. You You know, people are not problems for me to fix. I am here to pastor people. I'm here to help people wake up to what God is doing in their lives, to to follow after Jesus, to embrace his way. But at the end of the day, I'm not God. And you're not God. And maybe there's some places in your life where maybe you're trying to be God for somebody, and you can't. Those are big shoes to fill. (laughs) 
John the Baptist understood this. I'm not God. I'm just the one that prepares people for God. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the entree. I'm the appetizer. I'm not the main actor. I'm the stagehand. There are temptations that we face. The first is to be God. The second is the temptation of the Pharisees to live for power and prominence. If your Christian faith is all about grabbing for power and prominence, um, you've given into a temptation that is not from God. We face the temptation of embracing a religion that elevates rituals over mercy, justice, and humility. It is so easy to just treat churches like, hey, it's the social thing to do. I need a little religion in my life. I'm just going to show up on Sundays. Whatever. I love what Micah 6.8 says. You may be familiar with this. He has said to you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? That's true religion. God's not, God doesn't care about your church attendance or how much you listen to Christian radio or what bumper sticker is on the back of your car or how many Christian books you've read. If you don't get this part, that's what John the Baptist was calling people away from. It's not external religion. Now, here's the thing. If you're doing this stuff, if you're doing justice, loving mercy, and walk, walking humbly with God, then guess what? Showing up and being a part of church can be very helpful in that endeavor. But don't get the cart before the horse. So how can we embrace a way of life, maybe, that leads us into repentance, that actually produces good fruit, and it doesn't merely exchange one set of belief for another set of belief, something that actually brings a change in our actions. John the Baptist was known as an ascetic. Ascetics, they, if you're familiar, you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, they were compiled by a bunch of ascetics who lived out in the desert in these caves near the, the uh, Dead Sea. The ascetics were known for their... They're, they're brutal spiritual disciplines. They would, you know, they had all kinds of purity codes and they would fast all the time. John's disciples were known for fasting. Fasting can be a good thing. I could probably use some fasting in my life. <laughs> if I'm going to be honest, no fasting is going to happen for another few weeks at least. <laughs> But I think ultimately spiritual disciplines are not, they're not about trying to get something in our lives. Spiritual disciplines are about cultivating our hearts so that God, God's kingdom can take root. Spiritual disciplines don't get us, they don't earn us points with God or favor with God. But just in the same way that, that with my relationship with my wife, there are certain practices that I engage in that are profitable to our marriage. 
Same thing with spiritual disciplines. So what are a few things that we can do during this Advent season and maybe beyond that can prepare our hearts for for the kingdom of God? The first would be submission. Regularly, Regularly relinquishing control of our lives to God. I'm not just talking about submitting to your boss or your pastor, although that might be a good place to start. Uh, I'm talking about when you get into a situation this week where you are in over your head and you are feeling anxious because you're trying to control something. In that moment, step aside for a couple of minutes and just say, God, I let go. I let go of control. I submit to you. I trust you. You may have a situation with a family member where you are fighting the urge to try to control this person and make them do what you want them to do. Maybe you see them going down a wrong path and and everything in you wants to take over and control. Maybe you're going to have to step back and say, I let go, God. That's the discipline of submission. The second one is like it, indifference. Jesuit priests, they have this, one of their, their, their core values is indifference, cultivating a life of indifference. What does that mean? Uh, indifference means just being indifferent to your stuff, your money, your reputation. Indifference is recognizing money in itself isn't bad. It's our attachment to money that's bad. Your position is not bad It's your attachment to that position. Your expectations in life are not bad. It's your attachment to those uh, expectations. Learning to live indifference means I am indifferent to the outcome. I'm indifferent to my finances. If God tells me to give my stuff away, then I can because I'm not living for my stuff. (laughs) In fact, if if you're going to hear God say that, it's usually because you've learned how to be indifferent. (laughs) If you're not being indifferent with your finances and your stuff, you probably wouldn't hear God putting that on your heart to begin with. Submission to God, indifference with our stuff. And the last one would be prayer and worship. It says that John was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. We don't hear that. We hear of people in the Old Testament who, who the Spirit of God will come upon them in a powerful way. They do amazing things. But John, was, he was a Pentecostal in the womb, you know. <laughs> He's jumping around, you know. Um, when we worship and pray, we are opening our hearts to the filling of God's Spirit and, and His empowering presence in our lives. And, and, and that's one of the biggest things. So we learn to not just submit to God and take our hands off our stuff, but, but, but we regularly practice worshiping. Why, why do we sing all these songs every Sunday? Is, it just, is this just like the appetizer for the main? No, in, in a way, that is kind of the main thing. What I'm doing is the appetizer. We just have it in reverse here. <laughs> we worship together. Because as a community, we, we, are, we are singing to God. We are proclaiming who he is, his wonders, what he's done. Uh, 
And we're being shaped by that. You know, we're going to have another night of prayer here, prayer ministry, and uh, not not this Wednesday, but the next. Um, we kind of take one. We're, we're just we're trying this for a while. That one Wednesday a month, instead of our regular celebrate recovery, we're just going to pray for each other. So the celebrate recovery people just get to pray, and and everybody who's not part of celebrate recovery, we pray for each other. And basically what we do is we start with a time of worship. We pray for all the crazy events going on in the world because God knows we could use <laughs> some of his intervention. And then we break up into groups of three or four just to pray with one another. And I got to tell you, if you don't have the regular practice in your life of gathering with other people and praying for one another, you are missing out on, on, in your Christian life. I can tell you. It's an amazing thing to just be honest with other people and say, this is where I need prayer, and to have other people pray. It's simple, but I'm just telling you, make room in your life for that. And If, you, if you've got some place, then that's great. But if you, do, if you don't have that regular practice in your life, make plans to join us on that Wednesday night. Maybe you say, oh, I don't need prayer for anything. Well, how about praying for somebody else? <laughs> you don't have to need, you don't, your life doesn't have to be a mess why don't you show up and say, I want to pray for somebody else. Don't shout me down now. So where we're going to close today is with these three reflection questions. Number one is, where do I need to relinquish control today? Ask yourself that. What, what is God inviting you to relinquish control in? Where do I need to begin cultivating indifference to my possessions and my expectations of life and others? And finally, how is God inviting me further into a life of worship and prayer? I think as we cultivate these disciplines, as we ask these questions, particularly in this Christmas season, because everything in, in the media during Christmas is, is trying to get us to attach to stuff and expect certain outcomes. But as we cultivate these spiritual disciplines, we actually prepare ourselves for the reign of God in our lives afresh. Why don't you stand? Lord God, I just pray for everyone gathered in here today that, Lord, you would help us turn our hearts towards you, God. You'd help us bear to, to, to get our lives in a place where we can be open to the work of your Spirit, where we can bear the true fruit of repentance and change lives, God. And I just pray that you would bless us, in the, particularly in the weeks to come, God, to just have hearts that are ready uh, for your kingdom and your presence, Lord. Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen.